That was Libby on the organ and the piano this morning. Greet her afterward. She's been with us before. Um, you know, she might be the youngest organist we've had in this in this church. You know, it's a it's you know there are fewer and fewer students of organ, and so we were thrilled to be able to to bring her in. Susan Clark, our Susan Clark, is in Idaho right now. She had her feet worked on. She needed surgery on both feet. Uh, she sent me a video last night of her walking on her new feet across the room. So she, she's delighted. I think the doctors are pleased. It's going to be four weeks before we see her again. She's going to go down to Florida. They, they've got a property down in Florida, and she's going to recover. So uh, continue to pray for Susan Clark uh, as, as she uh, heals from this surgery that has fixed her feet. She's needed this surgery for, for years, and she had put it off. Uh, I said, how are we going to, you know, live without you? I, you know, and so finally she had to give in. Our second reading this morning, let's see if I can find it. Our second reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. I think I'm reading in the ESV version here. Is that the ESV version, okay. Same as your pew Bible. Hear the word of God. Children, raise your hand if you're a child. Children, obey, the, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. That's for you children. Fathers, raise your hand if you're a father. Okay, a few fathers here. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you for calling us here to this place this morning. We pray that you would be present uh, here by the power of your Holy Spirit. It is by your Spirit that these words of Scripture uh, were written. It's by the power of your providence that they have been preserved uh, through long centuries. Uh, we ask that by the power of your spirit this morning that our ears would be open and that our hearts uh, would be sensitive to what, you're, what you need to say to us this day. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are present with us also. You promised that wherever two or more are gathered in your name that you would be there. And so we're delighted to be in your company this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Morrison's first law of biblical interpretation states, when the Bible says don't, it's because a bunch of us do. And when the Bible says do, it's because a bunch of us don't. And so when the Apostle Paul writes, children, obey your parents in the Lord, and when he writes, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, we can assume that a bunch of children disobey their parents. And a bunch of fathers provoke their children. In my life, I have been both a disobedient child and a provoking father. And so I'm getting it coming and going with the Apostle Paul this morning. Today is Father's Day. 
And I want to begin by giving thanks to God for the blessings that I have received in the fatherhood department. I have liked kids for a long time and I wanted children even before I got married. In fact, I chose my future wife because she looked fertile and because I thought she would be a good... She looks fertile. And because I thought she would be a good mother. And it turned out she was both. And uh, for that, uh, I, I am grateful. When I was 29 years old, I got married. When I was 30, my first child, Rosie, showed up. And she was absolutely perfect. I loved just to look at her. And when she made her funny little baby noises, I loved her even more. And then with each passing week, there was always something new and something fascinating watching this baby human grow and develop. We humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. Nothing is more beautiful than a human person. Our children are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. And then God gave me a second child, my favorite son, John Calvin. Rosie has always been a take charge kind of person. And so when Calvin came along, she enjoyed taking charge of her new little brother. It's one thing to watch and to enjoy a child playing by herself. It's quite another thing to watch and enjoy as two children work together and interact with each other. And then, 13 years ago, God gave me my, my bonus child, Mia. Rosie and Calvin were virtually grown when Mia arrived. People in the supermarket thought that Rosie was Mia's mother. Early one winter morning, I was walking on the Pennypack Trail with Mia. I had her stuffed in my jacket to keep, her, to keep her warm, and her head was poking out. And some nosy neighbor called the police. There's an old man carrying a baby on the trail. I don't know how good of a father I have been to Mia, but I will say that Mia has benefited from some of the lessons that I learned on Rosie and Calvin. Because Mia has always attended Valley Christian School for the past nine years, I have brought her to school every morning and taken her home every afternoon. I could stop by and check in with her during the school day in the classroom, in the lunchroom, on the playground. <clears throat> One morning, a couple of years ago, Mia and I were walking from my office over to the school, and we were holding hands, as we used to do back in those days, and teasing her, I said, how much longer do you think you're going to let me hold your hand? She might have been about 11, I think, at that time, and she said, well, maybe for a couple more years. So that was when I told Ava that it was time for us to get another baby. She has not cooperated. And then... Last year, wonder of wonders, my firstborn had her own firstborn. His name is Sebastian. Have you seen him? Okay, is, is he over? He's in the, he's in the, stop by the nursery. Okay, he's very beautiful. He has a big round head. Okay, and he's always smiling. Okay, and Rosie and Josh have taken to parenting like ducks to water. They are better parents than Ava and I have been. And his Aunt Mia is very sweet and very helpful with her, with her baby nephew. There's something 
uh, wonderful about having a child of your own, this little person shows up, this little creature who is somehow like you in the way they look and the way they act, but they're not exactly like you because, well, they may be flesh of your flesh, but they're a mixture of father and mother, and all the while they're really their own person, a totally unique creation from Almighty God. When you have a child of your own, it's like seeing a version of yourself in an alternate universe. It's sort of like looking at yourself in a funhouse mirror. You recognize yourself, but things are just a little bit different. And having a grandchild is similar. But it has the added delight of unveiling a new generation in the family, and it gives the satisfaction of knowing that the family is going to live on. There's something uh, mystical about that. So many places in the Bible talk about the blessings of the Lord being from generation to generation, and there is a comfort in knowing that we are not the end of the story, that another generation will rise up from our roots and is going to carry on. I wanted children since I was, you know, probably 19, and God finally gave me children about a decade later. When you are wanting a child, but don't have the child yet. The child is just an idea. It's like a conjecture. It's a, it's a dream. But then the real flesh and blood baby shows up. And she is just who she is. Like you had your ideas about what your baby was going to be. And then you meet your baby and it's just who the baby is. And now the dream of fatherhood becomes the reality of fatherhood. And the responsibility fatherhood. I have to say that for me, the greatest and most persistent worry that I have had about my children, look, I've worried about them all of the time. One of the terrible things about being a parent is you worry about your kids. Like, you know, they're going to get hit by a meteor. Uh, they're going to run in with the wrong crowd. There's always worries when you have a child but for me the greatest worry with my children is that they might grow up and not become Christians and being a pastor's kid is no guarantee my father was a pastor but not all of my siblings are in church this morning and I myself spent many years running from God in part because of my negative reaction to my own father so this is what I've worried about through many years so when Rosie, my firstborn, married a boy from this church whose mother is also a pastor, well, this was an answer to prayer. Those of you who know Rosie know that she is a very planned and deliberate woman. She was a very planned and deliberate child. She had a few non-negotiable requirements for the man that she might marry, and she only dated men that she would be willing to marry, and they were these. He had to be a Christian. Rule number one. Rule number two, he had to be smart. All right. And rule number three, he had to be taller than she was. And who should show up at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church but the tall, smart, Christian Josh Bruce? Thanks be to God. You are an answer to prayer, young man. You have no idea how grateful I am to have the perfect son-in-law. It is such a relief. 
And then there's my son, John Calvin, who is not here this morning, but is at church up in Allentown. He goes to the Lehigh Valley Presbyterian Church. I gave him the name John Calvin to scare away Methodists and, and Quakers and Swedenborgians. But you know how children are. They have a mind of their own. And for a long time, about eight years, Calvin dated a Jewish girl. We prayed about that, that she might come to know Jesus, that he might find another girlfriend. And then God finally brought a Christian young woman into his life, and now Calvin and Cheryl are married, and every Sunday they are in worship at this solid little Presbyterian church in Allentown. We're going to be going to see them for lunch today. And he said, well, come any time after 1 o'clock. That's when church gets out. Awesome. And here's the bonus. They have a child on the way. I have not been a good father, but God has been good to me as a father. I have received far better than I deserve, and for that I am very, very grateful. So I want to talk this morning about our scripture passage, the New Testament scripture passage. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. By the way, Paul repeats virtually the same instructions uh, in Colossians where he writes, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, maybe some of you fathers are thinking that you would not provoke your children if only they would obey you more. Right? I mean, Paul, first of all, starts with the children obeying. Then he talks about the provoking. But let me remind you of Morrison's second law of biblical interpretation. And it reads this way. Always read the Bible to find out what you should be doing. Not what your neighbor or your children should be doing. So this morning I'm talking to the fathers. And we're going to hear what scripture has to say to us. In most of the cases, when parents have brought difficult and unruly children to my office, they have come to my office expecting that the pastor was going to be the heavy, that he was going to read them the riot act, that he was going to put the fear of God into them, that he would make their children more obedient. That's mostly what has happened in my experience. What I have found, however, is that it has been the parents most often who have needed to change so that the kids can get straightened out. Now, I'm not saying that every failure of a child is the fault of the parent. That is not true. Some very good parents end up with some really bad kids. But I have to tell you what I, that I learned a lot when I took my Welsh Corgi puppy, Snuffy was his name, 
to Lisa Birkenstock's doggy obedience class. He used to meet out there in the parking lot. Some of you know, raise your hand if you know Lisa. Okay, she's great, right? She's, she's a dog trainer. She's very good at what she does. But Lisa does not train dogs. What she trains is dog owners. And when the dog owners do the right thing, the dogs are just fine. And by the way, you may have noticed that Lisa raised five very nice children. And I think she used the exact same technique with her kids that she went with the dog. She had like a little clicker and a little bag of treats with those kids. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. The Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians, Father, do not provoke your children. The Apostle Paul writes to the Colossians. The word for provoke in those two different passages is in fact two different words. They're very unusual words in Greek. These are the only two places that they show up in the Bible. The word for provoke in Ephesians means to poke at someone until they finally come back and bite you. The word for provoke in Colossians means to embitter someone, to irritate someone, to aggravate or to vex a person. The ICB translation renders it this way, fathers do not nag your children. If you are too hard to please, they may want to stop trying. The first responsibility of a father is to provide for and to protect his children and their mother. Okay, You can't be a good father if you're not taking care of your children's mother. A father who does not provide for or protect his children may be a sperm donor, but he's not a father, at least not as the Bible defines these things. A father provides for and protects his children and their mother. That's job number one. Job number two is for the father to train his children, to teach them how to live, to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, as it says in the King James Version. That's just a fancy way of saying to teach them how they're supposed to live in a biblical way. So why is that such an important job? Why is it important for fathers to train their children to live a godly life? Well, because we don't live that life naturally. The only people who do not believe in original sin are people who have never had children. Now don't get me wrong, I like children, I love children, I enjoy children. But children have to be taught to be good. They have to be taught to live in a godly way. We have to be taught how to share. We have to be taught not to hit one another. We have to be taught to tell the truth even when it makes us look bad. We have to be taught to respect other people's bodies and their property. We have to be taught to do our work, to do our chores when we would rather play. We don't do those things naturally. Now, you understand that when I say that we have to be taught to do those things, I don't mean that we have to be taught the theory of doing those things. Yeah, we need a little bit of theory in our moral education, but what we need mostly is to acquire good habits of doing the right things that we already know theoretically. The good child, and I put that in scare quotes because none are good, 
The good child is not the one who knows what is moral, not the one who knows the difference between right and wrong. The good child is the one who does what is right. Does that make sense? You can know the theory, but not do it. Let me give you a very simple example, and I've used it a hundred times. Everyone in this room knows that eating a moderate amount of food and getting plenty of exercise will improve your health. We all know the theory. But lots of us struggle with the habit. Moral education is about the habit and not about the theory. The training of children is a little bit of theory and a lot of habit. So how do we acquire good habits? How do we get our children past the theory of what they're supposed to do to actually doing those things in a consistent manner? Well, I'm not an educator, but here's my theory. I think there are two ways. There is the carrot and there is the stick. We can use positive reinforcements or we can use negative reinforcements. We can use rewards or we can use punishments. Now, maybe some of you are from the spare the rod and spoil the child school of child rearing. That's the kind of family I grew up in. My father was not one to spare the rod. Neither was the school that I attended in Missouri. I'm pretty sure they had a paddle with my name engraved on it in the principal's office. There was one time they were so frustrated with me, they sent for the gym teacher, Coach Powell, to administer the rod that time. The principal was tired, so they called in for a designated hitter. Some of you parents, now you're different, you subscribe to the timeout school of child discipline. You don't actually hit your kids, but you make them suffer in a different way by putting them in timeout or grounding them if they're older. I know plenty of kids in timeout and grounding families who wish they were in the spare the rod and spoil the child families because at least when you get a spanking, it's over and done with in a minute and you can get back to doing what you wanted to do. Either way, whichever style of parenting you use, all parents resort to punishment, to negative reinforcement, to sticks instead of carrots. Parents of all persuasions resort, resort to attitudes and actions and words that their children do not like. And parents, at least if they're good people, do this to help their kids, to help them acquire good habits. And so sticks are part of the parent toolkit. Whether that stick is a spanking or a grounding or a long droning lecture, which is what I hated most. But in these two passages, in Ephesians and in Colossians, after the Apostle Paul tells the children to obey their parents, he also warns parents, or fathers in particular, he, he warns them to not rely on the stick too much. Maybe the stick has a place, but it is possible to use the stick in a way that just wears the kid down, that breaks his spirit, that drives the child to anger or to exasperation, that discourages rather than builds up and nurtures that child. And that has me thinking about computer games. 
I know a lot of parents are frustrated with how much time their children spend on electronic devices. Honestly, a lot of parents should be frustrated with how much time they are spending on electronic devices. Those things are as addictive as crack cocaine. It is so easy to while away hours scrolling through our Facebook feed or watching silly 15-second videos. Sometimes we adults do get frustrated with ourselves. And I know plenty of parents who are frustrated with their kids as well because homework and chores are not getting done. Because when you speak to a child who's staring at their iPhone, it takes some while to get their attention. And when they finally look up at you, they give you a stupid look and say, Huh? Because they haven't heard a word that you said. But what I want us to think about for just a minute is this. Why are those electronic devices so successful? Why are video games so engrossing? Why does it seem that even we parents are losing the battle to the internet? I think the answer is because they are all carrot and no stick. These devices reward but they never punish. They are designed to give you positive reinforcement at well-timed intervals that keep you clicking those buttons. The people who design these machines could create a game that would punish you for failure. Maybe the controller or the mouse would give you an electric shock every time you messed up. You could make a machine like that. But no one would want it, and no one would buy it, and no one would use it, and so they don't sell them. The truth is, is that the carrot is a more powerful tool than the stick. The stick does influence behavior. But when it is the only tool used to shape behavior, when it is used too frequently or too harshly, it leads to anger and to in discouragement and to withdraw from that relationship. On the other hand, reward, the carrot, does a better job of changing behavior. It's pretty hard to argue with the success of all those computer game designers and internet engineers who have trained us to spend so many hours happily and willingly but not productively clicking buttons on our computers and on our iPhones. What if we fathers were to begin thinking more like dot-com entrepreneurs and less like medieval hangmen? Now, please don't misunderstand me. The law of God has built into it both rewards and punishments. Some of those rewards and punishments we face in this world. Some of those rewards and punishments we will face in the world to come. After the law had been delivered by Moses to the children of Israel, Moses says to them, this is Deuteronomy 30, 19 and 20, he says, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses, now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers. Moses' principle is very simple. Follow the law and things are going to go well for you. You will prosper. You will be secure. You will have a long life. Don't follow the law and things are going to be a mess. 
Those are the rewards and the punishments that are built right into the law of God here in this world. Of course, in the world to come. But which will motivate us more often to follow God's law? The fear of a punishment or the offer of a blessing? Which will motivate us more often to do what God wants us to do? The stick or the carrot? Both are present in the law. But notice that Moses, while he mentions the stick, he puts his emphasis on the carrot. His key selling point for the law of God is that when we follow the law, we're going to live a long time. And we and our children are going to live in the land that, the God, that God has given us. And by the way, Jesus does the exact same thing. And for sure, Jesus spends time warning in graphic detail those who choose the broad way that leads to death. By the way, nobody talks about hell more than Jesus. If you're a red-letter Christian, you've got to be a hell Christian too. But Jesus leads with love and joy. Jesus leads with the carrot. He says, this is John 15, 9 through 11, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete or full. At some point, it needs to be our love of God and the joy that we take in his company, our love of Jesus and our joy in his presence, which is the carrot that leads us to good behavior. We do spend our entire lives wrestling between doing the right thing and doing the wrong thing. Fear of punishment can help us to avoid doing the wrong thing. I'm not saying it doesn't. There is a red light camera at York Road and Welsh Road. I know because I drove through a very mature yellow. And a week later, I got a $100 ticket. Guess what? I have never made that mistake again. I do the right thing to avoid the pain, at least at York and Welsh. But what about every other intersection? Is a red light camera at every intersection needed to make me a law-abiding citizen? Wouldn't it be better, rather, than responding to the stick if I were to respond to the carrot, I don't know, being a good citizen or being a good neighbor or the carrot of being safer or a more courteous driver? How many of us fathers respond to our willful children by putting up more and more red light cameras in their lives? And is that really the most effective strategy? Does it really produce the best results? What would it look like for us fathers to think like internet entrepreneurs or dog obedience trainers who get results, the results they want, by using carrots rather than sticks? Now, I don't have an answer to that question. But I know that there are some smart guys who need to be thinking about that. 
At our recent men's prayer breakfast, we talked about lessons we had learned from our fathers growing up. Some of those lessons were positive. There were things that we admired in our father's characters that we aspired to have in our own lives. But some of the lessons that we learned from our fathers were negative. Things that we saw our father doing taught us how we did not want to live. Fathers, your job, it's important. No one can replace you in the life of your children. Please don't let women do all of the parenting. Our children, no matter how old they are, they still need us. And they need to see us walking in the way of the Lord. If we are in church every Sunday morning, there's a good chance our children will be in church as well. If we have a real prayer life, there's a good chance that our children will have a good prayer life too. If we read and study and obey the Bible, there is a good chance that our children will read and study and obey the Bible. Fathers, let your children see you really worshiping God. Let them hear you singing hymns in your big, loud, foghorn voices, and I don't care if you can't carry a tune in a bucket, let them hear you pouring out your heart in authentic prayer. Children can spot a fake a mile away. Let them see you set aside your tithe of time and money. Nothing shows our children more clearly what's important to us than what we spend our time and our money on. And finally, Fathers, please be spiritual leaders in your household. Don't farm that job out to your wives. Don't, cheat, don't teach your children that church is women's work. By the way, this has been a persistent problem in the church. That church membership has always been a majority women. I puzzle over this, why it is that men are not showing up. Jesus taught us to call the creator of the universe Father. And I think that should give us just a little clue about the importance and the seriousness of the job that he has given us. Let's pray. Father God, we do uh, call on your name this morning, and we, th we thank you that you have brought us here to this place. We thank you for your word and for the ways in which it shows us your heart and your character.
the ways in which it reveals to us the things that are important to you. Lord, we confess that it also holds up a mirror to us and shows us uh, where we fall short. And so we ask for your help as fathers. We pray that you would develop in us the character that you would have us have. We pray that you would make us bolder and stronger and more fearless in our faith and in our practice of our religion. Father God, we offer thanks this day for the children that you have given us in our lives. I pray that they would be for us a joy and a blessing. I pray that we would receive the children in our lives as evidence of your favor. I pray that we would delight in them. I pray that we would enjoy them. I pray that it would be a pleasure for us to spend our time with them. Lord, I pray that in our practice of being fathers, that we might learn the discipline of laying down our own selves, of sacrificing our time and our agenda to the care of people who need something from us. I pray that we would do that without resentment or frustration. I pray that we would lay down our lives for our children, uh, knowing that that's good for us, even as it's good for them. Lord, this day we thank you for the fathers that you have given us. We thank you for lessons that we've learned from them, the good lessons, of course. We thank you for the blessings that they've been in our lives. Lord, we also thank you for the hard providence of giving us fathers who have been difficult and maybe lived in a way that we don't admire and that we don't want to repeat. Lord, may we learn from the mistakes of others as well. Lord, for fathers who have lost children, I pray that you would comfort them this day. Lord, we know that there will be a reunion with those saints who have gone before us. Lord, for those who have been raised by men who have not been caring and loving, I pray that the wounds of fatherhood not well done would be, would, would be healed. I pray that you would bind us up, put us back together. Lord, for those children today whose fathers are gone, who've either died or who have left them, Lord, I, I pray that you would meet them in their loss and in their grief. I pray that you would sustain them and provide for them. I pray that there would be other men in their lives and in their family who would feed into them, into their lives in a way that only other men can do. Lord, I pray that we would take our responsibility as fathers seriously but also joyfully. I pray that we would delight in the burden that we bear. Lord, I pray as well that we as fathers would support the mothers of our children. I pray that we would 
speak words of encouragement and blessing into their lives. I pray that we would lay down our lives for our wives as well, that we would give up the things that we want to do to make their lives easier and more pleasant. Lord, I pray that each of us who are fathers will come to the end of our days knowing that we have done well by our children. And Lord, for those of us, and that includes me, who have wasted opportunities, who have squandered many gifts, we pray that you would enable us to do a better job today and next week. Lord, teach us to be good fathers to our children. I pray as well for other fathering and mentoring relationships that are so crucial to the life of the church. In the church we have our extended family and I, I do pray for the men of this church that they would be father figures to other individuals in this congregation, whatever age they may be, that they might be an arm of strength and that they might be a word of encouragement and that they might be uh, a trustworthy counselor. For those of us who need father figures in our lives, Lord, I pray that you would put us together with the right people. I pray that you would allow us to find someone who can fill that role. Father God, it is a a privilege that I hope that we don't take for granted that we are allowed and encouraged and instructed to call the creator of the universe our Father. Lord, I pray that we would know you and trust you as a Father, as a Father who only gives good gifts Lord, you pour out blessing upon blessing. And even the hard providences of life we know are given to us for our own benefit and for our own training. Lord, I pray that we would not have the spirit of slaves, but that we would have a spirit of adoption. That we would trust you. That we would run to you. That we would count on you. That we would know that you are trustworthy and that you will never do us wrong. Lord, for those of us who have been wounded by fathers in the past, I, I pray that you would enable us to trust you in spite of our experiences here on earth. I pray that your true and transcendent model of fatherhood would shine through in all of its beauty. Lord, this day I ask your blessing upon the fathers of this congregation. I pray that you would equip them supernaturally for their very large job. I pray that you would give them a full measure of your Holy Spirit. Make them better than they are. Enable them to do things they could not do in their own power. And may all the glory be to you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.